This is In Residence, conversations from Town Hall. I'm Steve Scher. We are at cyber war already. Troops are being arrayed on all sides, public and private. Battles have been fought and more in the future. Shane Harris is author of At War, a look at what's happening in this new military field. He is senior correspondent at the Daily Beast, author of Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, senior writer at Foreign Policy. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks, Steve. It's good to see you. Okay, so uh, unbeknownst to a lot of us, we're fighting a war in cyberspace, and we got a lot of enemies. Right, it's true. We, uh, I think that it's something that we haven't quite appreciated in terms of um, just how vast this war has become. But we're hearing a lot about surveillance these days in the post-Snowden uh, leaks. Uh, we're learning more about how the NSA in particular collects information on people and their communications. But this is really a book about uh, the other, the other, another facet of this uh, vast operation. So how the NSA is going out and conducting offensive operations in cyberspace, breaking into other governments' computers, uh, probing systems that control electrical power grids, uh, how the military is preparing to field an array of hackers who would work alongside soldiers and uh, seamen and pilots if we ever went to a war with another large nation. So the book is very much an exploration of how we have been turning cyberspace into a battlefield, what the, what the military likes to call the fifth domain of warfare after land, air, sea, and outer space. Why is this happening right now? I mean, I understand because the Internet's so important, but why is there a battlefield in cyberspace? I think a couple of reasons. One is that uh, there was a moment of opportunity uh, about six or seven years ago um, the government started really cluing into the fact that our computer networks were quite vulnerable. So many of these kinds of things that we're talking about and that I talk about in the book that we're doing to other countries, other countries are also trying to do to us. Uh, and there was an awareness in Washington among senior officials that the government had to mobilize some sort of national defensive program for cyberspace and for the Internet. And in fact, when Barack Obama took office, he gave a speech four months after he was inaugurated saying it would be his policy to treat the Internet as a strategic national asset were his words. So there was this sort of zeal for defense, and at the same time, the flip side of it in cyberspace of defending a network, if you can defend the network and you can monitor it, it's not much more to break into a network. You sort of know the vulnerabilities in your own network, you can find them in someone else's. And there were people in senior positions in government who I think for a long time had been waiting for an opportunity to really kind of light a fire under senior policymakers, and that, that went along with uh, the same moment of opportunity in 2007 the best defense is a good offense. That's right. It is, exactly. And in cyberspace, the line between the two is very blurry. So, for instance, if I'm monitoring my network for malicious traffic that's coming at me, um, the tools that I need to get inside that network to peer at the traffic, to analyze it, are very much the same kinds of tools that you would need to go out and look into someone else's network. And the people who are specialists in analyzing cyber threats are frequently ones who know a lot about how to break into networks and build computer exploits to go after them. So the line between the two is actually, uh, it's, it's quite thin, and the expertise that you need to both defend a network and to break one is very similar. The one thing that Snowden leaks verified is that when the U.S. is pulling its hair out and saying, we're under cyber attack, we're under cyber attack, we were also made aware that we are one of the malefactors in the world as well. 
Yeah, in fact, we're one of the most aggressive. I mean, the United States, along with Israel, built the Stuxnet virus, which a lot of people have heard of. It's the only known cyber weapon. It was a piece of software designed to break a piece of physical equipment connected to a computer network. Um, we use cyber warfare with really lethal efficiency in Iraq. I read a lot about that in the book. Um, you know, I think U.S. officials like to talk about all the ways that we are vulnerable because it energizes people to do, you know, in Congress to spend money on these programs to get everyone sort of hyped up about it. What they're less likely to say is that we are, in fact, one of the uh, you know, the bigger aggressors uh, in that space. That's, that's that's a less comfortable conversation. We are spending real money. Uh, I think you had a statistic in here about what President Obama had promised to spend on uh, reducing green, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and it. Uh, falls short of the amount being just committed in one area of cyber war. Right. So in 2014, the budget for the Defense Department, just the DOD, and just for cyber defense, not the offense, because that's not public, but the defensive part is $14 billion. This, uh, in the same budget, uh, the amount of money being spent on direct actions to combat climate change is about $11.6 billion. So, And that is a threat that Obama in his speech called the greatest threat of our time. So we're spending more on one component of cybersecurity than we are on all efforts directly to affect climate change or to combat it. Well, how, how big a, a threat from your reading and your work is cyber, our cyber attacks? And and. Well, how big a threat are cyber attacks to American lives? Right. So I think we have to sort of, you know, put them in a couple of categories. Um, every day there are, the, there are financial crimes and frauds being perpetrated against people, credit card and debit card information being stolen from companies like Target and Home Depot. Those are fairly commonplace. Um, also what's happening all the time is spies in China particularly are trying to break into American companies, steal their trade secrets, you know, uh, competitive information that they can then give to Chinese corporations. So these are some of the more, like now, frankly, routine uh, aspects of activity in cyberspace, which do real damage. They can put people at risk. They do real damage to corporations. The sort of nightmare scenarios of somebody being able to break into the systems that control a power grid or a water treatment facility or a bank, those are more remote and I think for a lot of reasons, less likely to happen. Some countries don't have an incentive to attack them. I mean, China has a very powerful incentive not to try and attack our banks because they're our biggest lender. So if we go down, they go down with us. But we, I think we have to prepare for the possibility that in a conventional war, someone might try to attack those systems, that a rogue actor like North Korea or Iran might. Uh, even though they are remote, they would have a very, very high impact. Well, you tell about a couple stories that may have been hackers that gave us the blackouts mm -hmm. uh, on the East Coast and maybe uh, a Chinese hacker accidentally, what was your phrase, oops, my bad, yeah. uh, messed up a Florida power grid. Right. So there, there, are, there are officials who still think that two of these two recent blackouts, that one in New York and one in Florida, um, may have been triggered by someone poking around in the grid where they weren't supposed to be. It's, it's, it's a controversial uh, idea. Some people think that that's nonsense, that that's not true. But importantly, what we should say is that President Obama in 2009 gave a speech in which he said publicly 
that they knew of at least one instance in which a uh, intruder had shut off the lights in a city. Now, he didn't name the city. It's believed to be in Brazil by some people. Uh, Mike Rogers, who's the new director of the National Security Agency and the head of U.S. Cyber Command, testified before the House Intelligence Committee and said multiple foreign governments have probed the electrical, the systems of our electrical grid. So this is not a fictional idea. I mean, it's entirely possible. Uh, and I think that uh, people have probably become very close to uh, flipping a switch and turning off the lights. Shane Harris has written At War. Let's, uh, I want to come back to the actors and the malefactors, but uh, let's talk a little bit about, about you talk about your sources, and, you, and you, a lot of these sources are un, unnamed sources because of the, the dangers that they face. Some are named. But um, you, you do say something here that, that made me um, a little nervous. These risks, this risk extends to former government employees and military personnel. Several former intelligence officials have told me that within the past year, they were explicitly told by the intelligence agencies where they're still employed as contractors, they should stop talking to journalists. I mean, there is, uh, and the Obama administration, as you're right, is, is pretty hard on this. There is a real crackdown to keep this information from getting out. What's the rationale? I think there's the, the main rationale for cracking down on unauthorized disclosures, as the government likes to call leaks, <clears throat> uh, is that the administration wants to be in control of the information. And they, I think that uh, there's been a steady stream uh, in recent years of current and former officials talking about very sensitive intelligence programs. And I think that there is a real desire within the intelligence community and the Justice Department to stop that. Um, there's a lot of intimidation going on. I mean, I write about, you know, you mentioned these former officials. These are people who spent decades working for the intelligence community and now are sort of, you know, kind of like graybeard, graybeard consultants for them, sort of wise men of the intelligence community. And they're really offended by the idea that their former employers would be coming to them and saying, stop talking to the press. They look at this and they say, we live in Washington. We know how to talk to reporters and not reveal anything too sensitive. It's just become very, very paranoid. Um, on the cyber issues in particular, um, I think government officials have been really reluctant to talk about what our capabilities are because I think they've been afraid to reveal what it is that we can do and what we are doing. You're seeing them open up a lot more in this space now. And in fact, a pretty remarkable amount of information in the book was actually in the public record. You just said they know where to find it. But they're always talking about the defensive side. So what the bad guys are doing to us, you know, what China's doing to us. Um, the great thing about this is, is you can pretty much bet that anything someone's doing to us, we've tried to do to them too. And I was able to confirm a lot of that for the book. What about you? Do you, get, uh, do you feel surveilled or more surveillance because of the work you're doing? Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, I, I, I think, I, I, you know, in the years that I've been writing about this, I mean, I get suspicious-looking emails with attachments that I don't know where they came from, and I don't open them. Uh, certainly as a reporter writing on national security, I, I'm very, very cautious about how I communicate with sources uh, and, and careful to not leave uh, trails about that. It's very difficult. I mean, we live in an age of electronic communication. Um, you just have to be extremely, you know, cautious about it and, and sort of aware of, what you're doing at all times. And I've taken personal steps like using encryption and um, password lockers to protect my own information and things like this. Stuff that actually regular people can do. It's just that we're, we haven't quite reached the point where a lot of these security measures are as common as like putting, you know, a lock on your front door or your car. I mean, it, it's not like it's uh, just a fantasy, though. You, you write about the New York Times uh, getting some, uh, some folks to come in and look at their security because... Uh, there are people that writing for the New York Times or there are people talking to the New York Times in China that 
could well have gone or could go to jail for the information. That's right. I mean, the Times famously had this uh, penetration of its systems, presumably by people who wanted to find out who in the Chinese government and in the Chinese communities they were talking to, um, for the, particularly for a huge expose they did about corruption, uh, official corruption in China. You know, I presume that I would be more at risk from being hacked by the Chinese than by the NSA. <laughs> and I think, they, you know, they're, they're pretty relentless in that. And it makes good sense that an intelligence agency would target a journalist. I mean, you're talking to people uh, in sensitive positions. You have a lot of information. Um, you know, I can see why they'd want to get inside my computer and root around. You know, you go through a lot of detail about this, about the, the history of cyber warfare in the in the before the eight, eight 90s, but in the 90s and in the early aughts, you talk about Obama getting a, uh, a briefing from George Bush right after he takes office about some of the, some of the issues that are being fought. But I want to ask you about the, the surge. Mm-hmm. And we always have this uh, sense from the outside of how the surge succeeded in Iraq, at least in calming fighting for a long time. Uh, so, but part of that was intelligence, and it was sort of the coming together of what you are now calling the military internet complex. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really unheralded, uh, uh, I think, secret weapon of the surge, and people I talked to actually argued that it was the deciding factor in turning the violence around. So when those tens of thousands of troops went into Iraq, in addition to the extra troops uh, to to quell the violence there, the NSA at the same time uh, tapped into the telecommunications and the internet infrastructure of Iraq. Uh, and effectively owned all of the networks. They were able to uh, collect every email, every phone call, every text message. I mean, this is really an impressive, kind of astounding technological feat that they were able to pull off. Um, and they took all this information because they were looking for the communications of insurgents and foreign fighters and terrorists in the country. And what they did was to look at the communication patterns of who was calling whom, um, the frequency of the calls, and to use that to do a couple of things. One, to build a network, really, of who these guys were and how they operated by studying their their call patterns and trying to link them together. And the other thing was to physically locate them by essentially turning their devices into beacons, you know, really triangulating the position. They call this geolocation. Um, the, the phone that you carry in your pocket is effectively, you know, a beacon if somebody really wants to zero in on your location. They did other really astounding things, too, um, sending fake text messages to insurgents posing as people they knew, saying effectively, meet me at this corner. And when they got there, they found that it was a trap. U.S. forces are waiting for them. Um, Breaking into jihadi web forums and implanting spyware. So when guys are going online to to communicate with uh, other fighters, they don't realize it, but they're being watched and suddenly a bug is on their system. I mean, really just hacking the network, hacking the way inside those insurgent networks, and then giving that information, that intelligence, to the commando forces, the ground forces, the boots on the ground. So you've got intelligence coming in, giving it off to the ground forces who then go out, capture or kill the guys, capture their devices, bring it back, download what they've got, put it back into the machine, and the cycle just keeps repeating. Um, And, you know, people credited this with being really kind of a secret weapon and being... Uh, a system that allowed the military forces on the ground to process information and intelligence way faster than they would have been able to do if they had to crunch this stuff by hand. The most sort of startling statistic probably came from uh, David Petraeus, who actually publicly said he credited this thing that we're talking about with removing 4,000 individuals from the battlefield. It's a huge number of people to credit directly because of these operations. And you know, it really became kind of the, uh, the secret weapon that turned the tide of the war. 
So given that, why do you think it appears that we have trouble uh, corralling the ISIL fighters? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and it's something I've actually been talking to people in government the past couple of weeks about this. There, there are two main things that, that why this system isn't working again. One, to a large degree, the physical system is not in place. So when the troops left in 2011, a lot of this equipment went with them. Uh, and even if we could tap into the networks once again, we don't have the boots on the ground to go follow up. So you might be able to locate these fighters, but who's going to go get them? The problem, though, here, too, is that we don't really have the intelligence because ISIS has really gotten smart about how to evade U.S. surveillance. They have drastically limited their use of cell phones. They enforce this through the ranks of keeping people off the phone unless they need to be. Um, They're big fans of social media, but they've instructed their followers on how to strip out the information in a tweet that tells where you tweeted from, which, I mean, you and I could do that too. Um, They have uh, started using encryption to, to shield their communications. It's gotten really, really hard to catch these guys and to locate them, and that's why... This amazing kind of system that the NSA built with the military in 2007, now in 2014, it's sort of useless. The enemy has adapted. Well, and that gets us to what you're talking about, about offensive and defensive capabilities. The the, uh, United States is recruiting vast numbers of smart people to be hackers for the defensive side. Not as many for the offensive side, we think. Why? Right. So you know, I said earlier that the line between defense and offense is very close. But when you're talking about the really, what they'll say, the exquisite operations, when you get into the really high-end stuff, there you need people with special expertise. So that might outstrip what you would learn as a defender. Um, it's hard to recruit these people because, A, they need a lot of training. Uh, there aren't really a lot of computer science programs that specialize in this at the university level, although the NSA is helping to write the curriculum now for some of them and will actually pay for your education if you want to go through that program and then come work for the NSA. Um, You need a lot of security clearances to get these guys through. Um, The government cannot pay as much as you could make working uh, as a private researcher or going to work for a company. So it's just going to, it's a lot harder to field the people with that really, really high end expertise. Um, the NSA's sort of best cadre of hackers, this group that I read about called Tailored Access Operations, probably only has several hundred people working in it. Um, so we're in really early days, and it just, and I think we're also just now getting to the point where people are starting to think about this as a career option, if that makes sense. I mean, you think about, like, programming and coding and all these kind of things, but now, like, security is becoming a real growth area. Um, I, I think probably in the next couple of years as this becomes, there's more of a premium place on this, particularly by big institutions like banks who need to hire a lot of smart security guys. You'll probably see that ramping up. There are a lot of security startups that are actually quite highly valued now. So I think this is going to be sort of a big neck growth industry in the tech sector. Yeah, well, I'll get to that. Um, yeah, it's funny that they're called the tailored access operations or, or the DAO. Mm-hmm. They're very, they're very, uh, they're very thoughtful people. Um, you write about the Chinese, which has many, many more uh, offensive hackers deployed f- at one time informally, and now sort of taken under the wings of the various Chinese f- official organs. Uh, they're kind of like privateers, the privateers of the 1700s, right? Yeah, a lot of them are. I mean, a lot of these are people who are not explicitly working for the government. They're sort of there's this, they're often called patriotic hackers. They're people who do this and then sell the fruits of their labor off to the government. The government kind of turns a blind eye to it. 
what China has been able to do is just throw bodies at this problem. And, and these hackers are really kind of a blunt instrument. I mean, they're doing some very basic sort of attacks, you know, sending emails to people that look like they came from someone they knew and tricking them into downloading spyware. Not necessarily the kind of stuff that the tailored access operations guys might be doing. China just has more people to throw at it. And it's become a national policy for China to become a first world, first rate economic power uh, and to do whatever it takes to achieve that, including stealing information from their competitors. It's something that we find in this country to be immoral. We don't do economic espionage, we say, in the same way. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you accept that? I think that we make a distinction that doesn't have much of a difference. We spy on foreign corporations. We say we don't give that information to our companies. Like, we don't spy on Airbus and give the information to Boeing. But if we spy on foreign corporations and we give it to our trade officials to make policy, okay, that's a little bit different. But eventually that information, that knowledge is going to trickle out in conversations that those people have with people in private industry. Right. Well, you know the Chinese are looking at that and just shaking their heads going, yeah, same thing we're doing. Um, what successes have the Chinese had in applying these, uh, these hackers? So <clears throat> they, they, we, there's a couple of ways to look at that. One is sort of by sheer volume, right? So you can look at, you know, the, and people in government try and measure this in terms of X billions of dollars of intellectual property lost, which is a little bit of a hazy uh, number. But um, another way you can look at this is, um, you know, when the Chinese trot out a new fighter jet and it looks and it looks suspiciously like the jets that we've designed, um, that's kind of one indicator. There have also been uh, instances that we know of where um, China has gotten a leg up in uh, competitions against American corporations. There's actually a case uh, going through. Uh, sort of a form of litigation right now. Uh, an American solar panel manufacturer is asking the Commerce Department uh, to punish the Chinese government for hacking into its systems and stealing trade information. Um, American companies will say that they feel that they've been disadvantaged uh, in negotiations that they have uh, because they feel that when they sit down with their counterparts, let's say, in China to do a deal, the Chinese already know their talking points. They've already got a leg up on them. So you, you see this kind of measured in the way that the playing field has sort of been disrupted from the Americans' point of view. I, I was struck by something you said also, that um, the Chinese may not have the Blue Water Navy to uh, deploy all around, but they have the, the Blue Water Cyber Force to do essentially the same thing. I mean, is, it, is there an equal power there in the future? I think that, uh, you know, China's never going to be able to build, for instance, a navy that goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with us. Militarily, they're outmatched. The reason that they're spending so much effort in cyberspace is because they know that it is a, a contested domain. Nobody rules it. We're not the best. We don't own cyberspace. We don't dominate that domain. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that they are, uh, you know, if you're matching them up against our forces— they're equal, I think. I mean, no, nobody I talked to for this book would dare say that the United States has, you know, is years ahead of everyone else in offensive cyber capabilities. The Russians are very good. The Israelis are very good. The Chinese are good. The Iranians are getting better. The North Koreans are getting better. Uh, there's no for, there's no one in, clearly in first place right now. You know, when you wrote when you write this book towards the end, you 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 quote um, Dwight David Eisenhower, the military industrial complex speech that he gave, and. Uh, in a sense, uh, President Obama is also overseeing the military internet 
complex. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's where you see, as you said, startups. There's money here. There's billions being spent. There's also something new. You say something new is happening in terms of the collusion between the private sector and the public sector? Yeah, I think that there's, there, there is a level of that. Um, in some cases, you see these companies being coerced to some degree into, into or, or compelled, I should say legally compelled, to cooperating with the government, like when, you know, when the NSA or the FBI show up uh, to Facebook with warrants and say, give us the following account information. But you're also seeing, you know, this sort of mutually beneficial system kind of being worked out, whereby, you know, take, take big defense contractors, um, that for a number of years they've been sharing information about the threats against their network with the government. And the government has been in turn sharing information that it's seeing uh, out there in cyberspace uh, that the companies might want to defend themselves against. But the companies in, that are participating in that have gotten really, really good at doing cybersecurity. And I think partly because they've sort of seen the insides of how this intelligence gathering process works and now are basically marketing their expertise in cybersecurity to other companies um, outside the defense industrial base. So there's kind of a, a hand-in-glove kind of cooperation that goes on there. Um, telecommunications companies, are, I think, are another. I mean, really, ever since the 9-11 attacks, the big telecom companies have been pretty willingly participating with you know, a program of mass surveillance, collecting our phone records, these kinds of things. This extends into the cyber domain as well. Um, the NSA has started giving intelligence about hackers to the largest ISPs in the country so that they can then filter their networks and try to see if they can spot hackers based on the intelligence that the NSA is giving them. I think that's pretty extraordinary. I don't know of many instances, if any, in history where our intelligence apparatus, our spying agencies, were handing over the products of that to corporations. And we, you know, it gets back to the industrial espionage kind of thing. This isn't competitive information, but it's defensive information. It's sort of extraordinary. Well, it's all blurred. As you said, all these lines are very blurred now, and it's even blurred between public and private corporations and, and who's moving in between. You said, yes, they don't make as much money going to work for the NSA or some of these agencies, but it is a stepping stone to start companies or be a part of companies that could be making billions for these people. Um, somebody, uh, um, if, if the Chinese are like cyber spies, I think you quoted somebody as saying that uh, we have the, the cybersecurity firms that are the versions of the Pinkertons of the, of the 1900s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see a number of cybersecurity private intelligence firms being set up now in the past two or three years, many of them, some of them have some of had some of the best debuts on the stock exchange of, of, of any companies in the years they came out, being valued even at billions of dollars, which is really extraordinary. Um, talk about a bubble, but I think this might be real. A number of these companies that, that you know, that what they do is they go out and they they gather information about hackers and they monitor threats against networks and they analyze malware. They do things that intelligence agencies do, and they produce reports for their clients that are highly detailed. Many of the guys who run these companies used to work for the military or they used to work for the intelligence community. So they gained insight and expertise and knowledge about how to do this, and now they're going out and they're marketing it. Uh, to, to other companies. Yeah, you know, we, we worry about the two-tier uh, internet, but you're writing about what essentially looks to be like uh, the, the rise of what would be gated communities mm -hmm. and secure, uh, secure networks for those who have the money to pay for it. And as you write here, who would build such a community? 
Oh, the CIA or Amazon, because Amazon's been building one for the CIA. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a model that's actually already exists in government. So the most sensitive government networks, the really classified high-end intelligence and military networks, are actually, they're air-gapped, which means they are, are they're physically not connected to the, uh, the rest of the Internet. And I speculate at the end of the book, and, you know, this is, this is a little bit blue sky here, but you could imagine a time when there are either separate networks created or highly secured portions of the internet where really, you know, your day-to-day financial transactions, so you go and you do those, kind of like a clean zone or a gated community of the internet. And the price for you entering that is going to be your anonymity. And what I mean by that is that if you can, if, if the people doing security for any network can verify who you are and what machine you're on and trust that you are not an outsider or you are not someone who has compromised a machine and is using that to remotely attack the network, if they can pretty much have a good idea who you are and where you are, that's a really high degree of security. It's very hard to get that. This is often called the attribution problem, whereby, you know, there's a uh, an attack coming at your bank network and it looks like it's coming from a computer in Canada, but it's probably being controlled by someone in China, but you can't be 100% sure. But if you could zero in on that attribution problem and have a network where you knew exactly who everyone was, like like having a tracker on them, um, that might be very appealing for, for an internet user who wants that level of security, but they're going to know exactly who you are and where you are all the time. Well, I guess the, the, at the lower end of that are the companies like LifeLock who are advertising it late at night and saying we can protect your identity from identity theft. Same, same notion, but just not the billions of dollars for the big corporations. You know, you, yes, you might be speculating, but did you also write about uh, the ability, do they have this ability now, or is this the conjecture that the ability is available to, through the electromagnetic field, beam, in, beam software or viruses up to jet airplanes and make them do other things than they're supposed to do? Yeah, there's the FAA has actually been looking at threats to the air traffic control system. Uh, and there have been, you know, articles written recently about the ability to deliver malware via, you know, laser beams and this kind of thing. It's, it's really, I mean, it, the thing about that I, that, I, that I always remember is that if a really smart hacker can find a way into almost anything. And, you know, hackers get a bad rap. I mean, it's actually sort of, the, it's, it's a, a brilliant kind of craftsmanship in a way, the ability to look at a machine or a piece of software and understand how it's built and how it fits together and also how you can break it apart and put it together in new ways and make it do things that it wasn't designed to do. You know, really persistent, clever people are going to find a way into those systems. Um, and, you know, Smart security people would never say that something is absolutely impenetrable. So, so tell me, Shane Harrison, writing at war, you, you do say a lot of this information was in the public domain, but you talked to a lot of people and anonymously. Um, you also read the Snowden leaks. What did, what did the Snowden files reveal, and what was unsettling to you about them? I think what it revealed was the extent to which the NSA in particular which is sort of the center of gravity of cybersecurity in the government, has fundamentally weakened security of the Internet writ large in order to be able to penetrate and spy on the systems that it wants to. I mean, one big example that came out of the Snowden files, which I really found unsettling, was um, NSA, is, his expertise is in 
breaking and making codes. And the NSA frequently gets involved in the writing of encryption standards and algorithms uh, that are then put out publicly and uh, um, are adopted by companies that build them into their products. Uh, about several years ago, NSA was uh, discovered to, uh, because of the Snowden leaks, we know this now, uh, essentially inserted weaknesses into a very popular encryption standard that only the NSA knew about. This would be the equivalent of the government saying, we have this great new door lock that we're encouraging all Americans to put on their front door, but the government had a secret key to unlock it. And it wasn't a key that was particularly well hidden, by the way. So NSA weakens this encryption standards. No one knows that the NSA has done it. The encryption standard comes out. Some smart technologists start looking at it and saying, there's something wrong with this, but we don't know exactly know why uh, or what it is. Um, they did this so that they could, whenever needed, break the encryption that was being adopted, right? It's like that they would have privileged access into, uh, to be able to read the communications of anyone who was using that encryption standard. That is fundamentally weakening security. We depend on encryption to protect our financial data, our private communications. You, know, you can't have an agency on the one hand saying it wants to be in charge of defending us from all of the bad guys out there and defending our critical systems, and on the other, going out and undermining the technology that protects those systems. That's, those missions are at odds. Yeah, well, you're talking about the same institutions that had to destroy the country in order to save it. Do you... What, do you, what should I, as an individual, uh, you know, live in my life with my wireless devices uh, going into the future? What should I be worried about with this information? I think that you should be, you know, worried or maybe we should just say concerned and you can be proactive about recognizing that you just can't take your security for granted. You can't take for granted that your information is going to be protected unless you take some steps to really try and harden it. And, I, you know, I said earlier, if somebody wants to get into a system they're going to, this is not foolproof. But there are things that individuals can do. And if you use Gmail, you should be using something called two-step authentication. You know, go on Google right now, Google it if you don't know what it is, turn it on. It's very simple. It will basically ensure that somebody can't log into another, your email via another computer. Um, consider using things like password lockers, which r create very long, randomly generated passwords for all your important websites. You put them all in one place, which sounds a little scary, uh, but it's encrypted. Uh, it gives you easy access to it, and it makes you have make sure you have passwords that a hacker can't guess. Um, don't use your email address for login information. You know, if you're johnsmith at gmail.com, don't use that for your Amazon account login. Simple little things that we can do that you know, don't make us impervious to, to malevolent actors, but make it harder for bad guys to actually get your information. And frankly, could make it harder for the government to get your information, too. Boy, I got a lot of work to do tonight. Um, I know that The Watchers helped inspire the TV show Person of Interest, and, and I like to watch that show. Uh, how real is it? I think Person of Interest gets a lot right, actually. Um, you know, I, I know those guys now, and I've talked to their writers, and I think that they are probably more rooted in science fact than science fiction, I think. The, uh, the pervasiveness of data gathering systems, I think, is something that they, they, they really do, you know, home in on. Uh, and I think that's pretty accurate. Um, the idea that there could be a system out there that could predict, you know, infallibly every bad actor that's about, about to commit a crime, that's, that's still in the realm of fiction. But um, real people have pursued that very idea. That's what I wrote about in my first book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're... Their approach to describing a world in which we're surrounded by systems collecting all of our data, um, that resonates with me as being very truthful, yeah. 
Shane Harris at War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. Thanks for talking to me, sir. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to In Residence Conversations from Town Hall. Find us on the internet, on Facebook. I'm Steve Scher.